and welcome to Noise Creators episode 18. This one's with my bud, Eyal Levy. Eyal, you probably know because he's first established himself as a badass player in a band called Doth, and then after that, or I should say while that was happening, he established himself as a producer. Since then, he's gone on to do some very cool things where he's working with uh, Drumforge, where he's done his own expansion pack, JST Toads, which is a plugin company that makes plugins I use all the time on things. He has a really, really cool audio form called Nail the Mix that's based off of uh, what they do in the Joey Sturgis podcast forum. It's very cool stuff. It's one of the best ways to learn about how to get better with audio really fast. These guys are doing incredible, incredible work with it. And we kind of go through all this. Some of the stuff will sometimes get a little of the producer weeds, but I really encourage you, if that's getting bored, you know, there's nothing against the fast forward button if something's up for you, because if you're a musician, you're really going to want to hear like the last 20 minutes or so that we did where I think we have one of the better discussions on the problems that bands have going into the studio with songwriting. Yael has done some fantastic classes with Creative Live on a wide variety of subjects, and he actually has another one coming up on March 7th that you should totally register for, where he's going to be doing for a really immersive class on how they recorded a song with the band Monuments. But he also did another fantastic class on songwriting, and we get way, way into some of the things we see happening that's a real flaw with every band in songwriting and how you can get better with it. I think it's an essential, essential talk. Check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So, uh, so what I was saying, yeah. So, there's this book, Deep Work, by Cal Newport, and he just talks about batching. And every, you know, it was like funny thing because, like, with drums, like obviously on a record, you batch or you do all the guitars at once, and you don't set up. But I was never doing that in my life, and that's just been so life changing for me. I try to do that because. There's something that happens when you do the same thing over and over. I don't, not the same thing, but you work on a similar task. Repetitively, you kind of warm up your brain into it. That, like, kind of halfway through, you start to figure out better ways to do things. Whereas, if you were taking breaks and jumping around, you might not get that same kind of momentum. I, Andy Sneap, told me once that uh, 
one thing he does, which is a little different, like he batches as well, but the way he does it, he takes it even to the mix level. When he starts mixing drums, he'll do all the drums for the record, like sound wise. And like, I mean, obviously you won't be able to be final automations and stuff. He'll do all the drums in one pass because uh, he says that by the time he's on the sixth or seventh sound, I mean, song, the drum sound is unbelievable. Hmm. That's really interesting. So is he putting them all in one big long file then? Now that I don't know. Hmm. I'd be, uh, if only that form was not a vile piece of shit that it turned into. Uh. Oh yeah. Yeah. That it definitely degenerated, but I mean, uh, yeah, today this is my third podcast of the day and I really do like doing stuff like that. I find that I work best when I'm doing one thing and one thing only and not too distracted by different types of things. So, so have you been doing anything to get the phone less a little part of out of your distraction? Do you do anything like that? To get the phone out like, of I, I have the thing I have the thing of like I like so now like what I do is I take like I was actually just in it until just now is that like I literally turn make it so I can't hit the phone. It can ring if somebody wants to get in touch with me, but like and then I'll just read or I'll just work on my book or I'll just do something like that. Cause I, I, that thing of like, when you go into every producer's studio and there's one hand on Instagram, it's like, how are you paying attention to this record? And it's really had me reconsider things a lot lately. I spend a lot of time online mm-hmm. because you run a, my work- you run a forum that is very helpful to a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, uh, I mean, and also the software company we sell online, mm-hmm. the, everything I do is based around the internet maybe it's like a central nervous system almost so i have to be online a lot but that requires me to be a lot more disciplined about when i am creating content or doing non-internet related work yeah i will shut off the wi-fi or i will get a site blocker Mm. so which one do you use i use the chrome extension which is literally i'm looking it up right now so i can give you the exact name there is no perfect one, but uh, it's called Block Site. Okay. I mean, simple enough, right? I mean, th- obviously, if you want to turn it off and go get on Facebook, you can. But uh, the, just the idea that you blocked certain sites, uh, that I feel like that if you get the impulse to go waste time, like at least the fact that it's blocked and the block screen comes up, that should be enough to, <laughs> to keep you from following through on a bad idea. Yeah, and that's my problem is sometimes it's that I just drift into that. Even though I know I have the self-control to stop, I don't remember to stop. Well, it's very intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something, it's, it really is stunning how good they've gotten at getting us to keep going back like a hamster. Yeah, I mean, even back in the day on YouTube, you'd get on there mm-hmm. to look up one video, and before you know it, two hours have gone by because... <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you went on to find some recording thing, and by the end, you're looking at dinosaur discovered in South Kentucky Derby or something. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I need to look that one up. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is a video of that. Nice. I, I wouldn't be, I definitely wouldn't be surprised. Another trick, well, not a trick, just a discipline I try to get into is on Facebook, try to avoid the newsfeed. And try to avoid your page. If I mean, if you're going to do work on Facebook, like with ads or whatever, just log into the business manager. Don't even don't even go to your page. 
I have a extension on Chrome called uh, Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator that I use. So just what, 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 exactly what you said is that you can do everything except look at the newsfeed. I have that on a lot of the time, like especially if I'm like working on a new book is like I'll put that on so that I don't like because a lot of times if I'm like doing the new book, I do need to go look something up and then inevitably like this thing I want to write about only as a Facebook page. And then it reminds me to not get lost in what Donald mm -hmm. Trump said that day. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I don't like using an internet blocker because if, you know, we do need to get online. Like uh, a lot of the time I have to be like, you are researching stuff or working on a site or, you know, sending shit back and forth with business partners, whatever it is I'm doing. Uh, it often involves the internet. So I used to use an app called Freedom, which literally killed your Wi-Fi, but I stopped using that because I'd need to get online. I had the same problem with that one. Yeah, that was one of the old school ones. I, I don't remember how long ago that was. Yeah, I, I heard it on a Tim Ferriss podcast like two years ago, I want to say, and then I was like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's one's not for me. Yeah, it's been years. It's, it's amazing how much we need to uh, get serious about distraction eradication. Yes. Uh, and, and, and like, you know, I know it's a lot of musicians and producers here too, but like, it's stunning how much better work you can get if you get rid of even 25% of your distractions on how more effective you can get your mind into a problem that you're having with a song. Absolutely. You know, for people who have a hard time with this whole idea of turning off your browser or, you know, cutting off Facebook or whatnot, you studies do show that when you're focused on one thing, like Jesse said, you're going to do way, way better solving problems. And one thing that you can do is just set a timer. You know, if it's hard to do that, if you can't imagine how you're going to possibly get offline for that long or get, you know, off of the news feeds or you just got to check your email, at least give yourself like 20 minutes on a timer where you're not going to do anything but the one task and then, you know, do what you need to do and come back 10 minutes later, set another 20 minutes. I mean, anyone could do 20 minutes. Yes. And I think it's just like lifting a weight is that you have to get better and better. I'm on an hour right now, but I want to be at an hour and a half by next month. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, it, it's a discipline, like you said, like lifting weights. It's definitely a, a mental version of that because the brain will, it, it'll rebel. But the minute you try to focus on one thing, if you're not used to focusing hard, your brain will flood you with every other thing that's not important that it wants you to focus on for some weird reason. Like uh, who you have to call, who, what you forgot to say to this one person, all this dumb shit. Yes. <laughs> all, all stuff that needs to get done, but maybe not right now when you're trying to get your real thing done that you could do at another point when that's less uh, intensive. Or, you know, while you're commuting, the best time to get dumb things done. So let's return to this. Um, okay. what, I, what I like to, what I want to normally do, because I, I, I'm on this big kick now that we ha can't be ashamed about what we promote that like, you know, when you're an actor and you go on Jimmy Fallon, it's like, yeah, you're promoting this movie. You talk about the movie, but anything else, you're not allowed to promote it. You're doing an upcoming creative live class that looks really awesome. Can we talk about that first? Yeah. Oh, but what do you mean by anything else? So I'm not allowed to like promote no, the, no, new, I, the, new, the new Megadeth record. Cause I wouldn't anyways. Yeah. I, I, I said it the other day on Twitter, uh, the fact that he named it dystopian and that record went to number one, the hard rock uh, thing. I think it's a dystopian future that that happened. Yeah. I completely agree. They've lost the plot. So, all right. So I've got a creative live bootcamp coming up. It is really awesome because I've been trying to get them to do this for two years or three years. When I did the drum production course two years ago, 
started floating the idea of doing a really in-depth course. And one of the higher-ups liked the idea, but we never really went anywhere with it. Like, it never got past, we'll do it later, it's too crazy, you know, stuff like that. They do boot camps for, like, photography and stuff, which are, like, 30-day courses. So I wanted to do something where you literally go from start to finish of recording through mixing, through mastering, and with a real band mm -hmm. so that people can see, like, exactly how the shit goes down. Like, literally from pre-pro all the way through. So the band is Monuments, who are a killer, killer band. Mm -hmm. I chose them because we're friends, and so I know that I, I know that I like being around them. But also because uh, I've done Creative Live with John Brown, their guitarist before, and he's fantastic. And also, they're good enough as musicians to where we could get it done in the amount of time needed. Uh, because when you're filming for Creative Live, there's rules about how long you can film for this was actually a real recording session so we had this added pressure of having to do something for real but within the creative lives time because normally creative lives are kind of scripted in advance right you have all your sessions done you're ready to go so this is the real thing so we started with repro i flew in my drum tech who is phenomenal. Like we really did go through a really, really uh, intense section on how to tune drums, change heads, how to tech like a like a beast. We recorded their drummer and obsessory, you know, Mike Cabs did I mean literally the whole thing. Brought a guitar tech, showed exactly how to do that. It's almost no stone left unturned except for stones that don't pertain to the song I was recording. So that's gonna start airing March 7th, I believe, and it's going to be every single day for for about four weeks. And uh, Oh, wow. I didn't realize it. So, so how, how long a day each day for four weeks? Between two and four hours. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, it's a lot, and uh, I haven't filmed the mixing portion yet. I'm going to film that in Seattle. When I, I, I'm going there for the live kickoff. Like, day one is just going to be kickoff where I go through the pre-pro and explain what the hell's going on for the next uh, four weeks, and then we'll film the mixing part as well. I mean, it's pretty in-depth. Nice. Yeah. It sounds like a fucking great idea. It's, uh, you know about the in-person boot camps I do. Yes, uh, yes. Unstoppable Recording Machine boot camps, uh, which we still need to do together. But it's kind of a version of that. Uh, the ones I do, the only difference is that one is in person and mm -hmm. takes place over four days, and the other one is on camera. And with you know, it's not going to be tailored to the students at all. Like if you're in person, there's a lot more. You know, you can deviate according to the personality of the group. There are sort of personality, but you know, in this case, uh, they will see me in like a million, multi-million dollar studio recording a fucking awesome band. So yeah, the pictures of the studios you were at while you were out there looked amazing. Yeah. Man, they're awesome. Such a such a good time. I love small but good rigs as well. I've I've got no real preference. You know, I have a home studio. There's something about working in a like a spaceship style studio where everything actually works. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Everything works. The air is filtered and clean and uh, you're not breathing the exhaust of the uh, computer's fan. And well, I'm saying that because uh, I have a, 
a term for it. It's called mm-hmm. getting getting analogued. Uh, mm-hmm. When uh, you're working in a primarily analog environment and one piece of gear just decides it's not going to behave the way it was behaving mm-hmm. uh, on a certain day till the end of the session and just sounds different, you know, that's getting analogued and you have no control over that. And a lot of it happens via, you know, the studios that you're working in not having good maintenance or, or whatnot. So this place was fucking great. Nice. Uh, so what yeah. was the plate? What was the studio? Clear Lake Recording, mm-hmm. Clear Lake Studios in uh, L.A. Cool. But yeah, so it looks like Mar- March 7th at, at 12 p.m., it says here. Yeah. One thing I will say is a lot of people are ask me, like, well, what time is that for me? And the thing that you should know about the Creative Lives site that it does well is that that time adjusts to your time zone. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't realize they did that now. Yeah. So whatever time it says for you is... Uh, is right. That's that is pr- pretty rad that they do that now, and not so rad because we're East Coast guys, and when we fly out there to do courses, we have to adjust to their early schedule. Oh man, I I kind of like it though. Well, the thing is, I mean, I'm not a morning person. Uh, yes, I'll just start by either. saying that uh, you know those people <laughs> who like. I think you know because you just laughed, but uh, you, know, yeah. you know those people that like. It's almost like they have a battery pack attached to them, and they just wake up and are just ugh, ready to go. Like, no thought about staying in bed, nothing. Just like zero to 100, like the minute they're up. It's kind of like when my dog wakes up in the morning, and it's just like forgot that she was ever asleep and just just ready to go. I, that's, I mean, that's how these people are. I've never understood how they do that. I always have admired it. But the one thing that I have noticed is that when I do make myself get going super fucking early, I am so much more productive. Huh. Yeah. There, I feel like there's this window of time r- between like 7 and 11 a.m. That's just power time. Huh. So, I don't, not, yeah. not for me. My, my, mine is as long as I get 8 to 10 hours of sleep, I'm good to go. What's eight to ten hours of sleep? Yeah, that's what I got to do. I, I I had to acknowledge in my mid thirties that I am one of those people that doesn't function unless I do that. And you have to pay attention to your body. Some people need less. Some people need more. I am terrible unless I get eight to ten hours of sleep. Have you always been good about falling asleep? Like, have you ever had insomnia oh, issues? I, I, had, I had terrible. I, I learned how to correct them. I have like all sorts of rules. Like, so I don't. I literally spend zero time in my bed except sleeping. Like, I don't watch movies in bed. I don't do anything in bed except sleep. And that allows me to go to sleep. Like, my body knows if I'm in bed, that's what it's there to do. And that kind of cured it for me. That and a heavy dose of melatonin. How bad was it? I, I mean, for years of my life. There was a month in 2007 when I was doing a Menzinger's record. I never slept for more than two hours in a row. Okay, so you know how it is. Yeah. I've had it. I've had it real bad since I was like four years old. I yeah. can remember Same. being a little kid. Okay, so you know how it is. I remember just like being, I mean, I'm talking like really young and just watching the sun come up because yeah. I couldn't sleep. Totally. Yeah. I, uh, I learned and, a lot of rules, like caffeine rules I have. I have all sorts of disciplines that I just can't break, and that really helped me. Dude, I want to hear about them because I'm fi- I still fight it all the time uh, when we get off this i'm going to write you a, a nice long tip sheet and if any listeners want to see the tip sheet too you'll t- tweet at me and i'll put that on because what we should do is we should discuss the other really cool all thing right which 
which is nail the mix. One of the many things you do. I think that this is really cool. And I should also say, like, people who've heard this podcast have heard me say this many times before, that uh, you guys forum is the only good recording forum left on the internet because they all get poisoned by trolls. And I think what you guys are doing is really, really great over there. You want to know what the secret is to that to that group forum? Yeah, I do. It's behind the paywall. And we're mm. so, like... People need to be actual paying members of our service in order to get in. And that sounds a little dickish at first, but if you think about it, it separates people who are actually kind of serious about getting better from people who are just there to, you know, either shamelessly promote bad mixes or or to just kind of troll. We also have a really, really strict no assholes policy. No trolling, it's not tolerated at all. And we don't allow any self-promotion whatsoever. So people are not going to be clogging it up with, yo, crit this mix, yo, crit this mix. Like, uh, the, we have really specific rules about it where the only time you're ever allowed to post your own mix is uh, in a way where it's going to actually be relevant and helpful to everybody else. So, for instance, you have version A of a mix that you didn't like, so you tried stuff on it, and you have a version B, and you post them both. You tell people what you did, like I tried an 1176 Bluey on this version of the vocals, black on this version of the vocals, not sure which mm -hmm. way to go. Thoughts, you know, that that could be a lot more helpful than just tell me what's wrong with my mix. Yes. Yeah, no one wants to sit through that after the, the first year of reading a forum. No, no, of course not. Uh, I mean, the thing is that as it gets bigger, we have to uh, monitor it more, and we have admins now. It's it's important. We take that really, really seriously. We think that we live and die by our community. And, you know, the that forum is just kind of like a perk of the actual service, but I think that it's one of the most important things we have. Totally. And so, but, you know, lots of people have had forums in the past, but what I think you guys are doing with Nail the Mix is a you know kind of a new step in a new direction that's much more forward thinking can you explain that to everybody who's listening okay i'll give the details first okay. once a month you get a set of raws raw audio from us most likely it's going to be a song that we recorded or something we mixed but the point is that we sanctioned it as something that myself joey sturgis or joe wanisek uh, produced we send it to the community, they download it, like say on the first or second day of the month, and they start mixing for a mix competition, which will happen three weeks later. In the meantime, they have that community where they're you know, bouncing ideas off each other, helping each other out, and we do a Q&A right smack in the middle where we get on Google Hangouts and let people ask us whatever they want so we can help them along with their mixes and then towards the third or fourth week of the month, we have the mix competition. Now, the subscribers are the ones who vote on it. So there's we're not a part of who wins. Like, And it's all totally random. So I mean, not random, but anonymous. So people literally do vote for what they think is the best mix. And we end up giving good prizes like headphones and monitors and, you know, good stuff. And then... At the very end of the month, we do a live stream where myself, Joey, or Joel mix the song on air live with the chat room going from start to finish, answer whatever questions people have about it. And the thing that's really cool about it is that people are already really familiar with the song because they've been working on it for a month. 
So, you know, they have how they did it in their head. And then it's going to be mind-blowing to see how different we would do it, our, a different approach or even the same approach, but done probably better. So uh, it solves a lot of problems for people, though. Think about when you're starting up as an aspiring producer engineer. Some of the problems are that nobody wants to work with you and that everybody in your area sucks, right? And you don't have enough equipment to even really start recording people properly. So what happens is beginners don't even have a way to learn what the standards are, like what is good. Until you actually know what good is, you're not going to be able to produce that type of result unless you get there by accident. So if all you have around you are bad local bands or nobody at all, you're, you might have a very wrong idea of what's required for a good recording. So A, it shows them exactly where they need to what they you know where they need to go to get good results in their recordings like where the bar is what tight actually means and then it solves the problem b of you know but they have nothing to work on nothing for a portfolio so they get you know by if they subscribe for one year now they'll have uh 12 tracks that they can use for promoting themselves now we don't let them use the entire songs they can use only 45 seconds of them but that's because we're using songs by real bands a lot of the time so like for instance we're doing a a song by chunk no captain chunk next month nice yeah so my, my, my favorite bike riding music yeah it's really energetic right um but it, it, it gets me. I have a very big hill on my way to work. It's it helps. <laughs> yeah, it's it, that's such an interesting style, pop punk, but like yeah, that, but, yeah. But like THX core type thing, yeah. but from France. Yes. Yeah, of all weird combos, but yeah, like when you deal with tracks like that, you you know the label has to agree and the stuff mm-hmm. so 45 seconds is a good compromise we came to the artists aren't going to worry about a bunch of people reposting their song and diluting their you know their track the the original mix but also people have you know 45 seconds is long enough to where a potential client will know what the deal is with the quality of your mixing. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point. So so people go to what to get involved in this if they're thinking this sounds awesome. Nailthemix.com. This also plays in with that you guys, being you, Joey, and Joel, also do a plugin company. Yeah, well, there's two, actually. Oh, yes. I guess so you guys have Toneforge and JST, right? Well, it's Drumforge, Drumforge. and JST. Okay. Yeah, Toneforge is a guitar simulator that JST does. Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, we're very incestuous. Yeah, I, I was gonna say you guys, so so many companies, so little time. So you did a drum package for Drumforge. Yes, correct. Why do we need another drum package? Would you do different? Tell me something interesting about what you did. The way that Drumforge is set up is a little bit different than what you might be used to with other drum instruments. Whereas it's not like you're looking at the picture of the drum set and you can choose snare drum A or snare drum B and it goes out to a mixer, you know, and that's kind of what you're working with. The way this works is you have snare drum and like six microphone options to choose from. And it's the same for every drum. So every drum you choose and they've got a lot of drums that sound great. You can really, really tweak the sound of. So what I did was I took three of my favorite drums that they had and remix their microphones to uh, to 
what I thought would work in a variety of different settings. And the thing that's cool about it is I didn't want it to be like their microphone setup. What I did was I added stuff that I would normally automate in and out during a mix. So like, for instance, one thing that you're always playing with on a kick in a metal mix is where the where you're going to emphasize the subs is going to be 80s 60 uh and on what parts where you know that's just one of those things that's always getting automated automate filters to cut the low end at times on the kick so i you know for instance two of the faders are the sub emphasis one on 60 one on 80 and there's you know there will be like on the snare there'll be like crack uh, a track that's literally just the crack the snare bottom the snare direct a slightly more distorted snare a uh, very short reverb a longer reverb and all these things that like when you really break down where you're hearing the mix if you blend these properly you can get a pretty much a fully mixed tone coming straight out of the plugin like if you actually go to drumforge.com and look up ele expansion uh a levy expansion and listen to the examples those examples literally are straight out of the plugin there's not any mixing going on them so sound pretty finished nice that's that's very cool so and then you guys also do a handful of plugins as well i've on this podcast uh, talked about how fond i am of uh, dfx site you want to give us a little rundown of what you do with that I don't actually work for Drumforge, okay. but DFX Site is a great saturator, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, I I am involved with Drumforge, and I've got a lot of stuff coming up with them, but I'm not a member of that. I'm gotcha. a member of J JST, though. Okay, so yeah, and so the, with the JST thing, but so I hit so Drumforge. Anything with the Forge is that company, and then JST is a separate company. Well, except for Toneforge, gotcha. which is a product product line for jst gotcha. i know it's it's okay, incestuous yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm like man i pay so much attention to what you guys do and i still don't have this down yeah we're always adding new stuff so uh yeah it, it can get confusing but that's just kind of how it works drumforge is all drum centric that's the thing you know you're not going to see drumforge at least to my knowledge doing a vocal plugin gotcha yeah. You, even though I have used that DFX site on probably every instrument now at this point. I think DFX site has a lot of good use and a lot of guys like it. Yeah. Like a lot of guys with real ears and real skills. So that's cool. Yeah, I, I, I use it even. The funnier thing is, is I use it a lot on hip hop and pop more than anything else. So well, you use it. What do you like it on most? Well, so like I was just the other day doing a hip hop song and just like the sample was totally like. You know that thing where you just hear a sample, you're like, oh, that sounds like every guy who posts his mix on the internet. Yes. And it needed the excitement. And sure enough, it's just like dialing for a while and finding some character. It was like, yes, there was some character in this totally diluted sample. Man, I feel like effective use of saturation and distortion is one of the best things you can possibly do to add character to a mix. Mm -hmm. I love it. I, I, I think I said in my creative live class that it's like, you know, when I was younger, I would always read the guys I respect and say, I don't use compression that much. And then I'd be like, but their mixes sound compressed. And then I'd realize that they were getting a lot of their harmonics by driving the channels on their consoles. And that's what it is, is getting those harmonics and figuring that out is a, a lot of the game. And, you know, obviously there's the, you know, the Chris Lord Ouch trick that everybody's onto of driving that SSL. And that's where you get some harmonics. And this is how we do this in the box. Harmonics are your friend. 
Yes. Except for when you don't want to hear them on guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. So uh, do you have anything else going on that I haven't brought, brought up yet that you'd like to talk about? Or should we get into some questions about you as a producer, which is what you got into this world to do at some point? We've got, uh, we're about to launch something big over at the Nail the Mix site, uh, like a very big expansion. But I can't go into too much about it. But basically, everything that someone might think Nail the Mix is missing, we're adding. That's why you're called Nail the Mix Beta right now. Correct. Very cool. We wanted a proof of concept kind of with this. We just wanted to see if people even gave a shit before we really went down the rabbit hole of taking it to the next level. But from the day that we put it out, people were all about it. So then we decided, we first offered it for free uh, to a lot to certain podcast paid levels. They were in love with it. So then we were like, well, fuck it. Why don't we try opening up to the public, see what happens under the beta? And it's just growing really, really fast. So we know now that this is a good idea. So yeah, there's a big expansion coming up. That's about all I can say, though. And I realized something else we can promote is that you have a fantastic podcast that I've been on a guest on Johnny from Noise Creators has also been on a guest and you've had tons and tons of other great guests on there. You want to just tell yeah. us a quick word about that? Well, first of all, I didn't know that he was your partner in this. Oh yeah. But but uh I think that I was sick during his episode or something something happened. Like I missed my one episode for the year. That was the one I missed. So I had no idea that and by the way, you need to come back on. Yeah. It's called the Joey Sturgis Forum Podcast, which at this point is kind of turning into, I guess, a misleading title because because it's kind of turning into the um, Nail the Mix podcast or whatever. But the thing is, we started as a podcast. This whole adventure that we got into together started as a podcast, a subscription podcast. It goes five times a month, and we're going to hit our one-year anniversary, March 15th. And uh, yeah, it goes five times a month and we just talk about audio we will crit people's mixes we will bring on all kinds of awesome guests like yourself or so just some dudes we've had in the past year have been like chris crummett kurt blue andrew wade um i mean alan duchess uh we've had bob katz i mean we've just had a lot of awesome people we had taylor larson and we get them to talk a lot of these guys are not used to uh talking for you know they don't talk for a living um so they're not that would they're not like us where we do creative live we do podcasts all the time all that we do three podcasts in a day yeah exactly like you're you're a great talker but that's mm -hmm. i mean that's kind of what you do uh yes so getting these guys on on tape or recorded is kind of a big deal because they're not used to doing this. So, but we get them, we get them spilling as many secrets as they're comfortable spilling. And uh, yeah. It, yeah. You guys do a great job of it. I, I mean, I, I should say this and I've said this on other podcasts is that kids will write me on Twitter and say, why don't you ask more engineering based questions? And da, da, da. And I say, if you want to hear that, go to your podcast. Like this podcast is about production and ideas. I don't like it's facing towards musicians and people who want to make records, but it, you guys already do such a good job of that. Why do I need to overlap with you? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Sometimes we'll do some musician oriented stuff, but it's always in the context of recording you know so like we did guitar month but it was all in the context of like getting a guitar tone like what difference hands make it's not like 
about being a guitar player. It's more about capturing great guitar tones, but yeah. And, and, and great techniques for recording. Yeah. I, you know, truth be told, like I don't do a lot of guitar recording. Mike, my co-producer does it, but I listen to some of those episodes and I was like, Oh, you know, like I'm texting Mike. I'm like, Oh, they just had this idea. This is pretty cool. And you know, I've been at this for 20 years and I still learn. Well, I mean, that Kurt Ballou episode is great. Uh, he's just got so many awesome tricks and I, I don't know. I, what's crazy is that, about a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, I gave myself one year to not book any bands and to only work on my other businesses. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons for that, mainly because um, I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to be a slave to the music industry, if that, or the, the record industry. Let me correct that. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that I'm just not cool with. With some, if other people are cool with it, then yay. But uh, I'm not cool with certain things like waiting to get paid. I I was at first, but I'm not anymore. And I just have this uh, this feeling. I've always had this feeling that I got. I need to do more, 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 more. So I kind of got this idea that if I just kept on recording bands, I could probably just keep doing it and maintain. But if I really wanted to uh, to grow in life and not drive myself insane. I needed to set something up where I could use my expertise, like my two decades of, of intense knowledge and find multiple ways to exploit it and to help people and just get the most of it. Cause I get bored so easily. I, I, that, that, that's why I've expanded into so many things. As yeah. Well. You're, you're totally doing it too. Like, it's, I mean, I feel like certain people just have to, because they will lose their minds if they don't. And I, I've seen some people who stick around for the paycheck, and that generally hurts their not only their life but their career too. When they're not inspired anymore, but they're like, "Oh, well, this was the thing I had success with, and I got to just keep doing it." And you know, it. I, I, I've known those people. It doesn't do well for. Well, them. that's how I was getting. Mm. But let me tell you that when I just went to LA and recorded monuments, you know, I've recorded them before. So this is kind of, well, not the whole band, but I've recorded, let's just say I've been involved with them before. It felt great to record them. It felt mm. great working in the studio. It felt awesome. Like everything that I loved about it was back and it sounds great and they're great. And it was really, really good. But the difference was that, uh, this was under, under my, uh, my terms. And, not only that, this was after establishing my other businesses, so I felt a lot better about it. So now I feel like I can record bands when I want to, if I want to, and whether or not I make my house payments not tied to it. Nice. That's I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And like, so you stepped away and got inspired again. You're kind of saying as well, which I think is like one of the other nice things that when you're not, this isn't the only thing you have to do. And this is the only way you're going to make money that month is that that is a really good way of getting inspired again. Yeah. Well, the thing is that I don't know if I am inspired right now to book a band and do a record, but I'm not feeling burnt out or anything. Like, I'm not against it. And this, also, my financial status was actually pretty good when I stepped away from it. So I kind of jumped off a cliff because I felt really strongly about this. And I've known quite a few people who have done similar things, not necessarily in recording, but just, you know, the story of the dude who's making a decent living at a corporate job who realizes that he's got to do something else and he leaves it. I mean, stepping off a financial cliff 
with the hope of making it some someplace else. Well, that's kind of what the story was, but I feel like that's kind of the only way to really grow because you're, you throw yourself in the fire, you know, you have to get out of it. So, so do you want to get into some other things you, you, you weren't liking about the music business or is that uninteresting? Uh, it's up to you. We can talk about any of that. If, if, if you feel like you have some things to say, I think that that's always an interesting. Yeah. Thing. I don't want to go too far into negative land because I don't, because, yeah, I, totally. because I don't feel hugely negative about it. There's a certain amount of stress involved with the music industry that I think is, but it's okay if, if you've got the right temperament for it. But if you combine that kind of the constant pressure with boredom and lack of payment, <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of an insane an insane thing. Now the other thing too is that with a home studio, you would have eleven months of bands nonstop in living with me. So I don't know. I, yeah, that that really takes its toll. I used to do that too, and it really it, it gets no matter how much you like them. There's a certain point where you need space. Exactly. Um, so the thing, there are things that I wish would change about the music industry, like how quickly producers get paid and all that stuff. But the thing is, well, but I think there is an easy way to do this. And this is some of what we want to do with noise creators is we do want to change that term that you're waiting for the payment because it's insane that it's still like this in an internet age. But I personally changed it by, and you know, I can say I never lost a label record from saying, I demand payment up front for any record that takes more than 10 days. Like it's paid for on the last day or I am not interested in doing it. I think that to get to that point though, you got to have some leverage. Yes. But I, what I would also say though, is this is when I started doing that, like people are like, Oh, you can do that. You're established. I started doing that 10 years ago, but you, you started doing cool shit longer than 10 years ago. Yes. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not, not saying, I'm not saying I was at the bottom of my game. But I wasn't at a point where, like, let me say this. I was definitely not at a point where I had a huge bargaining chip. But I was just, I mean, I was also, like, one of those things where it was, like, I had so much work with other bands that I was able to just use this as a thing of I had the momentum behind me enough to be able to pull that card. But I think that that is a thing is that everybody does kind of need to start pushing that card. I started pushing it. Uh, I did start pushing it, especially with unsigns. Uh, there, there's no room for argument. And with labels, I started pushing it more and more. Uh, but the thing is that I do think that it is kind of broken. And I really do admire what you're doing as far as pushing that forward, because things like that, like literally things like that drive good people out. It's true. I, I mean, I didn't, when I did a Limp Bizkit record, they paid me on day 364 before I could take them to court. Oh my God. And it was nice because then I got a very, very sizable check and I was able to open the studio I have now because I had learned how to live without that money. But it also meant that I worked for months without a paycheck. And yeah. I just lived off a credit card. How old were you at that time? That was literally 10 years ago around now. Okay, uh, so, uh, did you, so I was twenty-eight. Did you have a lot of a lot of shit going on, like a lot of responsibilities at twenty-eight? Uh, I, I mean, I definitely didn't have a mortgage. I had a New York rent. Okay, yeah, my real life responsibilities didn't happen till thirty-one when I got the house. So I feel like I would have, when I was a little bit younger, I would have put up with that a little bit more. It's just that. I feel like, like you said before, if you're worried about that kind of stuff and you're not having a good time, it's going to reflect on the work. 
And rather than sit there and cry about the system or get bitter, I guess this is the positive slant I want to put on this is I don't want this to sound like this is like a complaining tirade or something. So instead of getting bitter and pissed and, you know, letting it ruin my life that I hate the way that is, I just decided, look, you've got all these skills. You really love doing the creative live stuff. Why don't you kind of try to take that to the next level, get involved with some technology stuff like plugins and establish, use your skills to establish other income streams and help more people and don't let your life be governed by these labels. And then, you know, now if I was to take a label record, it wouldn't be so stressful. If, uh, if I had to play the money game. I, I think that you're making an interesting point too, that I think that is one of the things is maybe that's some of the problem is that we all get so dependent and addicted to doing this work that this is our only real way we have money. And we don't think like, yes, I need to put this aside instead of hit a compressor to just deal with the fact that this is the dynamic of getting paid for this stuff is that you need to have a, a month or two worth of savings to pay all your bills because things aren't always going to happen right. And bands cancel, you know, like the worst thing that ever happened to me was like, I was going to do a record that was 45 days and the drummer, like the smart guy he was went snowboarding and broke both his legs. Yeah. Nice. Well done. Well, I guess you do need to have savings, but I don't ever, but the way I feel like about savings is that you should pretend like they're not even there. So I feel like it's a total last resort, but you do need to have that reserve because shit will happen. Bands will fire you bands will get hurt like bands will break up label timelines will change like everything under the sun will happen yeah and there's kind of there's kind of no way around it. it that just is the nature of the business you brought up a really good point uh, which is that a lot of guys who do this can't imagine themselves doing anything else and that was actually kind of tough for me because you know like for instance when i was a lot younger i wanted to be a guitar player yeah, so, so for people's background, you were in a band for years. Um, I'm going to go out on the list. Doth? Yeah. That's how you pronounce uh -huh. it? Okay, I'm glad I, I'm glad I did that right. And then you went into production along your band's journey. Well, no, no, no. I did production before the band, but, oh, okay. but I did it as a... Uh, as a tool to get my band signed, but gotcha. I guess I got decent at it pretty fast. And so I was making a living at production before my band got signed. As when my band got signed, we started doing, I guess, real shit, you know, better recording opportunities came around. But the thing is that like, so if you're someone like me or like any of the dudes I know who are really have been really focused for over a decade on this, you know, it takes so much work to get good that you can't imagine doing anything else. It you, you didn't approach this with a plan B in mind. So how are you at the age of 32 or 33 suddenly going to redefine yourself and figure something else out? Most of us have no other skills. No, you know, like the skills that make you good as a producer don't work in the corporate world. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things where you're kind of stuck if you don't, do the hard work of figuring out, well, what else do I have to offer that takes advantage of what I do know and what I have done? And it's hard and it's scary. It's definitely scary and it definitely takes a lot of work, but uh, it's definitely worth it. I, I, you, know, you know, it's funny though. I, the, the one point of contention I'd give is that like, I do 
feel like there's a lot of what happens in the corporate world. There is room for the skill of a producer. Like I think that today, so part of my new book argues that producers shouldn't be called producers, that that was a, the wrong term, that my father worked in advertising for years and he was a creative director. And I think that that's usually more of what a producer is is somebody who helps come up with the creative concepts and the means to execute them throughout a project. And a lot of what I think now that we've like fulfilled some stuff in the corporate world where it's not just management is that it's getting about innovation and creativity and a good producer is good at assembling a team and getting them to do that. I actually think it's kind of shocking. So for anybody who's like, fuck, you know, my life sucks. I'm never gonna be able to do anything. I think that that's the thing that a lot of producers are learning is how to be a really good creative manager. And so if you are getting burnt down this, that's something I think you could do it. And I think it shows by what you've segged your life into. But you know what? Uh, I agree with what you just said. But the thing is that if you don't have any real work experience, you might have all these skills from years of putting together records and managing people and all that stuff. But if you don't actually have real world work experience, you're not just going to be put into a creative director job at a real company. Yes, not at not like, a, not a real company. Maybe a shitty, dinky startup if you have some of the right friends. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like <laughs> me. But, <laughs> nice. but, but we're doing real yes. well. So, but but ex exactly kind of like me. It's not like I could just uh, waltz into yeah, some... You're not wa wa yeah, walking into Andreessen Horowitz uh, tomorrow and said, hey, how's yeah, it going? With my with my resume, hey, I recorded drums on a Black Dahlia record. <laughs> like, it, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So, have you ever see the singer of motionless and white he's my recommendation yeah he stayed at my house <laughs> that dude yeah so i mean i i totally agree with you but yeah once you get to a point where you have power then yeah your producing skills do will make sense but before that if you try to i, I guess as a producer you're supposed to kind of de define a lot of what the standard is what the direction is like a lot of those types of things if you you know you get some job at a company doing something kind of along what you want to do where it could turn into a much cooler job within a year or two you can't start off acting the way you learn to act around bands and labels that's i guess that's what i what i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's very, also very why well, i'm trying but very to, good point to, that's also why i spent all that time like doing the inner work of figuring out what i could do with what i have now rather you know what i could do with what i have now that will actually work and help me get to the next place i gotta go and yeah it's I recommend that everybody do that and for a few different reasons, which is that, number one, the world, not just the music industry, but the world is in constant flux. A lot of people are saying that this is the most flux that there's been in generations. So, you know, there's nothing stable about anything and it's not just music like it used to be that people would say you can be hot one minute and not the next and there's stability in the real world now there's no stability anywhere and so even if you have a good production career now it, that doesn't mean that in three years you'll be commanding the same amount like and it's not because of anybody's fault either like for instance if you get big for a certain style like that gets trendy or whatever with well, the trend shift 
that's not your fault that they shifted, but uh, you could get typecast. There's all kinds of things that could happen uh, that's not like a bad mark on you. It's just the way the world works. So I feel like it's a good idea for people in the music industry to know what else they can do. Plus, the thing that I always learned going in to the music industry, even when the getting was good in the 90s, was to establish multiple revenue streams. That's always been the thing. So earlier on when people could you know rely on labels for an income it would still be like you know your publishing check plus a royalty check plus merch plus this and that now you know now those won't cut it unless you're huge but uh it's still that idea of having multiple revenue streams is still alive and well more important than ever I, I think you couldn't be more right about that. So we got kind of onto something that I did want to talk to you about. So do you guys, since you're educating so many young engineers, I think there's a lot of people who are concerned that there's just going to be too many studios, that the work is going to be so sp spread thin that no one can really do this. What do you think when you're educating a lot of these people that, you know, is there anything that you're really imparting on them on how they can stand out how they can do something unique like wh wh what is your general advice when somebody's really looking for a more meta insight into their productions well there's uh there's a few things first of all which is that you need to be you need to get your definitions straight right like so if you say you really want to do this well what does do this mean does it mean you want to be the one guy who gets like all the top label bands and is like hot for two years? Like, is that who you want to be? Because if that's who you want to be, it doesn't matter what time period you live in. That's just a, you know, a com there's a lot of luck of the draw that goes with that. In addition to hard work, of course, like everything I'm about to say assumes that you're already badass. Okay. So along with being badass, there's a lot of right place, right time kind of stuff that goes along with being, I guess a production star and you can't bank on that. You could never bank on it in the past and you can't bank on it now and you shouldn't bank on it in the future. Yeah. I, I think that that's a really good point. You know, it's, it's something I had to piggyback on that is like, people will often tell me like, Oh, well you're from Jersey. Da da da. da. That's always a hotbed of beds. I'm like, actually you, I could show you a few years where Jersey literally turned out no national acts. For a while it's had great ups and downs but what if you're trying to get established during that down yeah exactly you, you can't approach this thinking like i'm gonna be a star or something like that that's that's literally not in your control there's a lot of things that are in your control whether or not you happen to work with the right band at the right time where the public is ready for that and it just hits the collective consciousness just right you can't control that shit. so you should just focus on realistic stuff like getting as good as possible and doing as much work as possible so that you build the right reputation now one of the things that that goes along with the fact that a lot of people have studios is that a lot of people also have bands now a lot more i mean there were already tons of bands before but now everybody has one so i think that there's that I also think there's a, a few more things. So I do think there's a lot more people out there to record than there were before. Just think about how cheaply a band can get formed. Number two, I do think that we are seeing a fundamental shift, though, where it is true. A lot of people are going into this to record themselves. But that's been happening for years. We're not going to change that. But at the same time, just because people, just because a lot of people are more interested in learning how to record themselves than 
paying somebody else to record them doesn't mean that they don't want to get good at it. They, you know, they still want to get good at it. Um, and then at the end of the day, uh, the final, the final thing is that I think that if you want to build a reputation for yourself and you want to uh, stand out, there's enough work going around to where if you actually do the networking part of it and all that, you know, everything that goes along with that, all the marketing, all the hanging out, it, you can still build a good career. So I, I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question. No, uh, the, 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 it was very good insight. I think, you know, people need to adjust their expectations, but that's not like, I don't mean people need to adjust to a new economy or whatever. I think people always have had to adjust their expectations because there's definitely reality and fantasy about what's possible. And so I find the guys I know that I've taught who have gone on to do cool shit have usually been the guys who, strangely enough, work the hardest, take the business side seriously, are always trying to get better, uh, just no matter what they do. There's always trying to get better always getting new bands on recording bands for free if they have to just to you know like traveling to shows to meet with bands like they do all that stuff that everybody knows they should be doing but they're too lazy to do well the guys that i've taught who have careers now they all do that shit i say the same thing and you know it's like it's funny because everybody's gonna be bad at one of them and i always say like the one i'm the worst at is going to shows yet i can point to the way i got some of my biggest bands was going to shows and talking to bands and i exactly like you know i will always say like you know when i give the advice of like don't get lazy don't get comfortable it's like that's been the thing i've been most comfortable is like i can't i don't think i've talked to a band after a show and told them i'd like to record them in seven or eight years and but like you did it early on and and if i was still doing that i'm i guarantee you i'd make records that were much bigger but i just like i've gotten used to going home and going to bed after working a 10 to 12 hour day Fair enough, but if you're 19 years old and you don't don't have a career and you want to make this happen, well, that's that's literally the way. I mean, unless you you unless you kind of there there if you get into a really big band, but again, that's one of those things where you know there's luck involved in that. You shouldn't rely on that. You shouldn't rely on somehow working with a YouTube star. Like all these all. I'm, I'm just saying, like, ways that I've seen people's, odd ways that I've seen people's careers get established. Like, you shouldn't take the story of somebody who started a movement to be to be how it's going to work for you, because those are the outliers. However, the rest of us pretty much have a very similar story. Different details, different circumstance. You know, I went to shows, I talked to bands, I did shit for free, I maxed out credit cards, I got gear, I lived in my parents' house, I did it in their basement, like... How many people do you know who have that same story, right? Again, like the guys that I teach who are doing shit for real, they all do that stuff. So let's shift something to a little bit more towards musicians. You've been studying records. You've been teaching people. What are some under-discussed things that go into making a truly great record? Not like the obvious of like being good at your instrument, being prepared. Do you have anything that you can think of that you don't see discussed enough about making a, a record that really comes out great? Among musicians themselves? Well, I mean, anything, any thought that you see or any technique you know of that goes more into that? Yeah, okay. Well, I think that you live or die by your songs. At, and I mean, 
I don't mean this to say that everybody should have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus songs, right? I just mean you live and die by the quality of your writing, no matter your genre. And people might say, yeah, well, bands like Asking Alexandria are huge. What the fuck? Well, sorry, a lot of people like them. So obviously they're doing something right. They struck a nerve with somebody. And, you know, McDonald's is not as good as Gordon Ramsay, but but a lot of people like McDonald's too. And just, you know, just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not good. But uh, you live and die by the quality of your songs and how relatable they are. And the one thing that I just don't see worked on enough and I just see overlooked is taking the songs to their best logical conclusion. And what I mean by that is that I just noticed that a lot of people leave their songs in a very early draft of where they could be. Like, for instance, if you're working on a script for a movie, you're probably going to go through nine or ten drafts, right? Fully written. But how come I get bands coming in, and I mean pro bands too, who went through the pre-pro once or twice, and that's it. Why am I working on such an early draft, right? I should be working on version seven, where it's like really, really formed, and I can take it the the rest of the way. I feel like that discipline isn't there uh, a lot these days. And I do a lot of song critiques and mix critiques, so I get to... Yes, and you you did a great... uh, What brought me to think about this is you did a great course for Creative Live on songwriting. Yes, that was fun. John Brown was there for Monuments Week. We dissected exactly how they write techie pop songs and how they have the same exact structure as pop music except it's in a it's in a techie progressive crazy way but we also had the singer from demon hunter on um we had todd from nails on and we had a pop writer on yeah the idea was to kind of bring on four completely different styles uh, from artists that are considered to have good music and figure out what the common elements are between the, uh, the good songs. And we also did some song critiques and that I've done maybe 500 in the past year. You know, so that's in addition to all the bands I've recorded over the years. And that's the one thing I just see over and over and over is that people are not finishing their songs. And that's, I don't even mean like they're not coming in prepared with their palm mutes. Like there's a fundamental just lack of understanding how to even finish a song, I think. And there's, I've noticed that at least for me and most people I know have two styles of writing songs. They have the inspiration stage you know, and that's different for everybody. You know, for some people, it happens when they're on drugs. For some people, it happens when they're at the gym. Like, for some people, it happens after practicing for an hour. The brain gets turned on. There's a creativity inspiration stage where uh, uh, great ideas begin. But then there's the editing and revision stage, which is where you take everything the rest of the way, where your technical skills actually come into play. And I see people really fucking around too much in one or the other, like either left brain or right brain, not doing either of them enough. Like it's always lopsided. So either they're totally technical and they they cross off all the T's and dot all the I's musically, right? They're every, everything is like doing what you think it should do technically and you, it kind of 
it reminds me of the kind of music that my professors at Berkeley would do, where everything was just technically right, but not no soul in it whatsoever. Yeah, I it, I, I call this like my new book, uh, "The Head Versus the Heart." That you know, the music with music theory nerds has no heart, and then the music. You know, you get these like young punk bands that you're like, oh my god, your singer's not in tune and there's nothing wrong, but it has tons of heart. It's just not that easy to listen to because it's really abrasive. Well, the best, uh, in my opinion, the best find the perfect uh, the perfect balance of the two. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, so we'll get. So basically, I feel like, for instance, in the inspiration stage, you might if you play guitar and you're writing songs via guitar, like you might get inspired, start writing and then put down the next riff and put down the next riff and just keep going till you're out of gas, right? Well, sometimes that's that right there till they're out of gas, that becomes the song. And then they'll go back and tweak all those parts, right? Rather than think to themselves well the first riff i wasn't totally inspired yet second riff not yet third riff yeah i was fucking inspired there fourth riff you fuck yeah delete the first two riffs start coming up with variations off of those uh variations of the themes variations of arrangement you know the technical stuff that if you have a good vocabulary for writing you can easily do and you know start writing splinter parts off of off of the two cool ideas that you came up with until your creativity kicks back in, which it always will. It just needs to go to sleep for a little bit. And then you come up with more awesome inspired shit. But I feel like people are stopping, you know, they stop short at, uh, when it gets to the editing phase by, by, yeah, they don't delete enough of their own stuff and they don't actually like, take their stuff to the level it needs to be so say you wrote a riff in an inspired state you still don't know if that riff is as awesome as it needs to be you haven't tried it 15 different ways yet arrangements and all that like i mean you might have hit gold the first time you really don't know until you've tried a bunch of different ways and when you hear a really cool band that has like really cool sections that are kind of unexpected and fresh and all that well how do you think most of them came up got their songs to that point usually it's because of a ton of revisions by the time you get past number 10 that's when you really start having to be creative again kind of like when i you say make a list of 10 uh 10 brand new ideas <laughs> Just, right you'll come up with five but once you start getting six and seven then you really have to start like exercising that brain muscle because it starts to get really hard and that's where the good ideas start happening in my opinion i i, I am a hundred percent with you and this is a lot of what i've been discussing and writing lately and i think that there and there is even another side to it is that then some people just undercook their first drafts and i think that there's like there's like this funny thing of like that you need to figure out what type of person you are as a creator and then figure out how to compensate for that in additional drafts like i heard this great thing of um i never watched the american office but you know everybody always praises it but they said that they're first month of writing the show they would do this thing called a blue sky period where you were encouraged to never critique somebody's craziest idea and to actually go too far like do things that are so far past what you would ever be able to put on tv so that you actually get those ideas and then tame them down to get there 
then conservatively, you could have the other side where that could happen in the later drafts. Yes. And you just need to find what type of person you are in that, but make sure you do that redrafting work no matter what. And that's why I think your point's great is that you do have to do this redrafting, but then also figure out who you are. Exactly. And the thing is that when you're doing the super creative shit, you don't want to be bound by anything. There's nothing, no creativity killer, uh, in my opinion, that's greater than uh, feeling like you have to make a certain part like something when you're in a creative mood like so okay so i have a really cool riff i just wrote that's like banging okay now the audience expects to go to a chorus because that's what people like so i now need to write a chorus it's like no you don't need to write a chorus you need to just fucking keep coming up with shit because you're in the mood for coming up with shit put the pieces together later and if you happen to uh write a song like in the first draft, like, you know, might happen sometimes. Good for you. But that's probably not going to happen every time or even most times. Yeah. And I, I think that there's like that, that, uh, that old uh, saying, like trust, but verify. It's like, you could trust that you did it good, but verify it by going through a creative process where you try other things. And if you really, if your gut tells you that that first one really was it, it may have been it. Now, if your gut always tells you the first thing you wrote is it, you just are a very bad demo-itis person. You fall in love with your ambitious moments, but and maybe you need some other collaborators to give you some insight. But like, yes, yes, <laughs> learn all this stuff about yourself, and that will get you to better music. Well, no matter who you are, your creativity is going to ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. Like that's you know, you're human and you have a brain. You have a finite resource called creativity, which needs to be refreshed. And you don't always know how long that refractory period is going to be. It could be 10 minutes. It could be two days, like whatever. It it, it could be two bad weeks if you're, if you sleep as bad as you and I have in our lives. Exactly. So (laughs) just because you're writing doesn't mean it's good. But the thing is that if you develop a good system and a good process, you can harness the the best parts of being creative and the best parts of not being creative. Uh, when you're not feeling creative, that's the best time to start doing technical things. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, it's a, you make you make use of how you're feeling. You know, so for instance, one thing that would happen to me a lot is uh, when I'd be practicing guitar, practicing, practicing, not jamming, like practicing scales to metronome kind of thing. Oftentimes, within about 45 minutes, the light bulb would turn on and I would just start spitting out cool shit. One thing that I've noticed is by doing a lot of the technical stuff, you reawaken yourself uh, creatively. You know, if I'm not feeling creative, at least I got a lot of work done on the guitar. And like I said, if, if you develop a process to where you know that in general, if uh, you go through this routine towards the end, your brain will usually turn on. Well, then boom, you know how to get over writer's block too. It's just, like you said, it takes getting to know yourself. Yeah. And well, I, I, I think like one of those things too is, it, it, I think you really do is like, there's a much more complex habit, I think, in music of that, like, you do need to utilize certain times you do it. Like, I, th- I honestly think musicians are some of the worst utilizers of things of, like, the thing I always talk about is, like, 
oh, the bassist can't make it on Tuesday night to practice, so we're not practicing. It's like, well, that's a great time for your guitarist to make sure the picking patterns are good, to make sure your drummer is yes. not doing stupid stuff with his bass drum, to go over the fact that your singer has no lyrics that are coherent in your songs. Like, there is 20 things you can do when one member can't show up, and it doesn't even matter if it's the main member. There are things you can do. Take that time and actually do it. Yeah, when for, in my band, we got known for being a super tight guitar band, one thing that led to that was when we were unsigned and freshly signed, our bassist used to ditch us at practice a lot. It was one of those situations where it was what it was. We were keeping him because he was great. And, you know, it, it was what it was. So we we're just like, okay, how do we make the best of this? Me and you are going to sit down with the drum tracks or a metronome and make sure that our guitar parts are fucking tight as balls so that when he comes in and we practice with the full band, we're not an issue. Mm. If you can find the ways to make those weaknesses you end up being your strengths, and that's always like the story I'm trying to tell in this is like, that's a perfect example of that. And I know since our time's almost up, that's even probably a perfect place to end. <laughs> Yeah, was there anything we didn't cover about that? I think that's the funny thing is you and I could probably go on forever. So, Well, one thing, though, is uh, you know, maybe to tie everything together that we kind of just talked about because we went from my business explorations into songwriting mm -hmm. and stuff. But the two things that kind of – well, the one thing that kind of tie those together uh, in this episode are the idea of – knowing yourself mm -hmm. and doing the work required to know yourself same way that I had to go inside my head and really get honest about what I can offer to this world besides just the one thing that I've been doing for the past five years every single day and it took a lot of work I had to really get to know myself as a writer and a player too so that I could maximize my creative peaks maximize when I wasn't feeling creative as well and that takes work and I think that that even gets to, there was an episode we did this week where uh, I think it was Drew Owens. We were talking about how the people who like brag about that all they do is work in the studio, studio 24 seven, studio 24 seven. You can't get the work to know what you're doing and analyzing what you're doing in the meditation done. If you're one of those people who just brags that you're in the studio every waking hour. Studio 24 seven sucks. I've done that for years on end and it sucks. <laughs> it it, it <laughs> It's not something to be bragging about. That, uh, that's, that's, that's always the thing. Let me ask you this, though. And I know we got to stop, but let me just ask you this topic of Studio 24-7. Okay, so me and you are veterans at this point. I think we've gone to a point where we will no longer do Studio 24-7 unless there's a huge like emergency reason to do it. And everyone I know who's a veteran will not do that anymore. Like it, it just won't. There comes a point where you will literally no longer do it uh, for a bunch of reasons. Like a nothing's that important. B you, the work suffers. C fuck you. I'm going home. Like end of story. But the thing is that all of us who are now veterans did that when we were younger. So every single one of us, like, Everyone I've ever interviewed on the podcast has had that time period where they did go hard as fuck for like a few years. So, I mean, do you think it's a good idea for people to do that, at least in the formative stages? So, so this is like something I've kind of been obsessed with. That I've been like really trying to break down as I write this new book is that like just because everybody does it doesn't mean it was the smartest way to do it. And 
No, you're right about that. When I look back, like there is a thing about like myself that I know that like I get so obsessed with anything that I'm doing that I do it at a, at a consumption level, and I'm very good at finding like the right information to follow. That I get a lot of knowledge really fast compared to a lot of people that I've known in my life. I mean, I don't know what the average of the world is, but like I do know this though that the the downside of when I do that is I often lose. I am seeing the trees, but I don't see the forest. And I've only become conscious of that in the last two years of my life. And I am convinced that whatever mistakes, I mean, I, you know, I like where I am, so I don't want to call it mistakes, but I think I would have been a much more successful producer in my peak years when I was doing that. If I had stopped and looked around and done some analysis of what was happening now, we're, possibly let, let yeah. me throw this at yeah, yeah. you though. And sorry to interrupt, no, 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 but a lot to... of people, a lot of people think that we hit our creative peak in our late 30s, 40s, and 50s. That's that's like leading thinking about creative people. Well, yeah, if you read if you read like that Walter Isaacson interviewer's book or that book Geography of Genius, they uh, that that is very consistent in the, at least the last two centuries. And you can look at plenty of examples to kind of show that people who peak in their 20s are outliers. Um, the vast majority of people really do figure it out kind of at our age now. Now, the thing is, would you have really learned what works and what doesn't at a younger age if you had not done that? So, see what I'm saying? Like, Okay, so, 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 so here's what, what my argument would be. For me, at least, when I have epiphanies, like I like to say I'm an epiphany addict, that I'm always reading things and trying to find new things where my mind opens something and I'm able to see more than I could see before. Those epiphanies almost never came during working hours of just trudging. That was me just doing things. And even with like, like I always have this thing like where like every day I would devote 15 minutes to 30 minutes to trying something new, no matter what, like I can't go home that day if I do it. But that was rarely the epiphany time. The epiphany time was when I had to take three days before a record and I thought back upon it and what went wrong. Yeah, uh, and you know what? That's something that even when I was younger, I would I would do. But the thing is, I would go twenty four seven and then like crash for a little bit, <laughs> meaning like for a week or something. And I, I definitely always did feel that time off helped me get better. But at the same time, it's almost like I don't know, man. I feel like are you mature enough, like at the age of twenty two, to really know the right way that works for you? That's I mean that's. Like, I get it. I agree about that there's smarter ways to work. Mm -hmm. Work smarter, not harder, of course. But mm -hmm. our, I don't know. It's kind of like I just wonder if we're, as people, not developed enough to really take advantage of that kind of work mode. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But I think, sadly, there's no ABY test for this, like uh, the blue versus the CLA uh, 1176. No, can't go back. You don't get a redo. So uh, I, the thing is that the one thing that I see that people don't do enough of uh, when I'm working with newer people is spend enough time on it. Mm. So you're saying that like a newer producer coming into that, they, they're underdoing their hours. They're not overdoing theirs. Or a musician. I also think that they could be focusing on the wrong shit. Like, for instance, when I was at Berkeley, there were a lot of guys who would brag about practicing 12 hours a day. And what they would do for 12 hours is 30 minutes of scales, 
30 minutes of arpeggios and then 11 hours of fucking around. And that's, that's not practicing for 12 hours. So when people say in the studio 24-7, well, do they mean that they're working that whole time? Or are they just there? Like, are they on the internet? Like, what are they actually doing? Yeah, I think that that is a thing, too, is that there's a very big difference in the intensity of work you do. Like, you know, like I always say, it's like I haven't broke for lunch in four years. Like, I eat lunch at my table, I bring it before I get to work, and I work, I do my 10 to 12-hour day, and then I leave. And I work that entire fucking time, and I very rarely even stop for a story at this point. Because I gotta get it done in that time, because I have other things to do. But that's That you, is me. Which... <laughs> That's a very good way to work, yes. in my opinion. But, but get it fucking done when yeah, you're there. Yeah, and that's. I, and I also should say that's because I, I, I. This is another thing I think is like lifting weights. Is I think it's hard for the younger guys. I do a seventeen-hour day, two days a week at the studio, so that I can be free the other three, and I try to just get that in there. And I do all my prep work on other days, and then I get this stuff done. I never could have done that when I started. I can do that because I've been doing this for so long that I've like lifted that weight that I can bear my attention span to sit there and just get it done because I need to. Yeah, there's a certain focus that you can only... That's the other thing, yeah. There's a certain focus that you can only develop, I think, through having done, put in the hours. So I kind of think to like military training where they make you go on the 40-mile walk and stay up for like four days in the middle and you know all the the hell week kind of stuff i think that it's not necessarily about what they do in the hell week portion of the training it's more about the mental weights that they're lifting so i guess maybe that's what i'm getting at is that everybody needs to go through that time period of just fucking working hard on it. I, I think now we have the metaphor that's the right thing is that th this is the thing is that like you need to go through some of that period so that you're going to be able, so that because what I think it even is is that let's say you're doing those records and there's a certain amount of years that you can get through where you're doing the hell week thing and you know you some people can coast for three to five years of doing the hell week and actually put out good work but eventually there's gonna be a point you don't but what's nice about that hell week is that when you're doing 10 hour days after that, it seems like you're lifting a five pound weight instead of a 25 pound weight. Well, the idea also is to do it in your formative years so that you don't have to do it when you're actually going for a career. So when you're starting to work with like bands and like stakes are higher and you have real opportunities, if you've done all the legwork and developed your skills and put in the time, it's going to be a lot less stressful and you will be able to, uh, go home a little earlier and get that mental perspective that will help you do a better job. So I kind of, I kind of feel like doing that homework at the time period in your life, when you have the energy to do it, you should do it. I think that's very well put. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. 
I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 